Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. On Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. I was wondering what we were doing. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'm all a flutter. It's a Bastille Day. It is. July 14th, 2019. As you just reminded me. You Ooh know, la la. You know, we saw... Oh, why were you talking about having Mexican food for dinner? That's clearly not the food of the night. Is there such a thing as takeout French food? Are you kidding me? Is there? <laughs> of course. What? What is that? It would be everything. Oh, really? Look, sometimes we make it to Frenchtown on Bastille Day. We didn't quite uh, do that today. I Usually we, we try to avoid Frenchtown. Yeah, well, that's a point. Uh, on French Day, yeah. <laughs> because it's a madhouse. Yeah. But um, As it should be. Well, ooh, we, la, la. We were doing about... Get as, out the quiche. <laughs> take out quiche? Take out... Uh, it's like the premier takeout item. <laughs> Really? Yes. Okay. Americans have been selling quiche to go I, okay. for centuries. I, uh, all right. Centuries. All right. Um, yeah, we did about as as non-French a thing you could do today. We watched Wimbledon, which is uh, English, which is anti-French, right? And uh, so what did we see? We saw the final. Uh, we don't watch too much tennis. And we thought we'd just catch the tail end. You know why? Because Boy. tennis is boring. Were you bored today? I was bored. Oh. The ball goes back and forth and back and oh, forth, and no on. one ever wins. Someone did win. We put it on. How long did it take? It took a long time. Five hours. Four and a half hours. Five, five hours. So we should I think say it was five and a half hours. Federer against Djokovic. Now, here's the thing. First of all, it was a very good match, and you were, notwithstanding what you're saying now, uh, you were riveted. But uh, And those guys are very good, and they made a big fuss about Federer doing that at the age of 37, as if 37 is a problem. But in any event, they were very excited yes, about it. Yes, we decided to call Federer the wily old codger. It's, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Djokovic <laughs> is 32, so it's not like it's that different. It's but uh, in any event, that and was he did exciting. say at the end, Federer did say at the end, you know, yeah. that uh, he... He hopes this will give hope to other 37-year-olds. Right. And then Djokovic said, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. Who, I hope I can do this when I'm 37. That, you know, for that money, he, he will be. But uh, the funny thing, on the men's side, the tennis has been so dominated by those two and by Nadal that no one else really sees themselves as winning these tournaments. Uh, and I, how do I prove that? I can prove it. I have proof. Because, you know, those are the three dominant players but you need a fourth for a semifinal. And the guy who was in the semifinal with those three players, with Nadal and Federer and Djokovic, it's a fellow named Roberto Batista Agut, who the Times refers to as Batista. I'm not sure about that, but anyway, that's what they say. But here's the funny thing. He was in the semi. He lost to Djokovic. But he was so... He, he thought his chances of being in the semi were so remote that he scheduled his bachelor party for his wedding on the day of the semifinal. So that was on Friday. All his friends were getting ready to head to Ibiza for the bachelor party, except he wasn't going to be there because he, he was in the semis against Djokovic, um, uh, which is, tells you how little faith the other players have. And I mean, this is not a, a terrible player. He's 23rd in the world. And yet... In other sports, of it Europe, never occurred to him. It never occurred to him that he could. And he probably said, "Well, let's plan it for this day. Then I'll forget about right. losing, right? Yeah, and not getting that exactly." Far. I mean, these guys. In other sports, if you're twenty third in the world, you're thinking of winning the tournament, right? That never occurred to him. <laughs> He's going to be busy that weekend. So his friends were flexible enough to reschedule the bachelor party uh, for 
England. They, 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 Which they, doesn't sound nearly as much fun. Especially after he lost to Djokovic. It yeah. couldn't have been so such an exciting thing. But in any event, so the tennis is, is dominated uh, in that way. There's nothing you can do about it. But uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was riveting, as I think you did too. It's, it's good tennis. Those guys yeah. are great. Keep telling yourself that. <laughs> uh, so here's something. Uh, yes. Mad Magazine. Okay. And Mad Magazine... Uh, Went, didn't go out of business so much as they said they're going to stop creating new magazines. They're just going to exist for the purpose of producing archival material and repackaging. Oh, really? They're not even going to do a digital edition? No, nothing. No. The staff is gone. And wow. there's, as you might expect, there's homages to Mad Magazine. There's one in the, the Wall Street Journal by a fellow named Bruce Handy, which I thought was pretty good and pretty on point. Of course, I'm talking as a person who... Uh, derived a lot of pleasure from Mad Magazine. But here's the way this fellow Handy described the situation. He says in the sixth grade, he got his first bad report card from a teacher named Mr. Brown. And his teacher, his parents came in to talk to the teacher during the conference. And uh, they said to him, Brown said to him, uh, he was always such a good student, uh, was always very attentive, eager to please, and now he's impossible. He's a smart aleck. And the question is, what happened to Bruce Handy? And Bruce Handy said, I'll tell you what happened. It was Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine clued me in to what was going on. As he put it, it freed my inner skeptic. It validated my sneaking suspicions that I wasn't always getting the whole truth and nothing but the truth from grownups. Plus, it made me laugh. Um, Mad Magazine was this satire magazine uh, in which they sort of made fun of all kinds of conventional entertainments, be they television programs or, frankly, even politicians. And they put them in sort of an irreverent light. Uh, and it was considered scandalous. If you were 12 years old or 13 years old or 14 years old, you thought this was crazy. And, and uh, it was wildly funny and wildly irreverent. And he handy contrasted, believe it or not, with Highlights Magazine, which you remember, which was what you had to well, read in a dental office. Well, I think we had Mad Magazine in the dental office, too. Oh, really? I, I headed for Highlights, even though that was the oh, most boring my. thing ever. Instead but of Mad I, Magazine? No, I never got Mad Magazine. It did not really um, ring my chimes. Well, Mitch, <laughs> he says... Highlights said fun with a purpose, and Mad Magazine was the opposite. I mean, he mentions a whole bunch of celebrities that, that went for it from Steve Colbert, you know, the kind of usual suspects. Uh, but he had two interesting quotes, uh, one from a fellow who I don't know, John Calapinto. He says, his recollection of Mad Magazine is, I was five years old, I was leaving our corner store with my mom, I saw a copy of Mad in Iraq, Alfred E. Newman grinning. What's that? I asked. His mother said, that's not for nice boys, she said. Life-changing moment. <laughs> and then you have Art Spiegelman, who, of course, uh, done the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic memoir, uh, Mouse, about the Holocaust. Uh, he's put it this way. Quote, Mad was, the entire, was saying, the entire adult world is lying to you, and we are part of the adult world. Good luck to you. I think that shaped my entire generation. Uh, you know, I think... Uh, I think there's something to that. I mean, uh, they, they quote the, the big cultural influences at the time, uh, things that made people skeptical about things from skateboard culture to uh, Tolkien to Anne Rand to all kinds of crazy things. But they said Mad Magazine was a thing that cut across. And he said it told him in California there was a world outside his little little neck of the woods. And that world turned out to be New York. But uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it was it was influence. Not, as you made point to me, perhaps more for... 
uh, men than for women or boys more than girls. Yeah, I but, don't know. I don't have any scientific uh, analysis to support that. Uh, but, but, so I, I don't know. I don't doubt this it. This could be a prejudice on my part. I'm telling you, for my world, for two years, maybe 18 months, was all about Mad Magazine. And I probably gave my parents the same experience that Bruce Handy gave And then did his you parents. grow out of it? or Some would say no. Some would say no. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't need to read it anymore. No, I didn't need, you, need you, it. But Lessons it, learned. Yes, it, it gave me sort of a, a little bit more of a... Not that anyone would call you a smart aleck. No, no one would. Critically evaluative person is what people would call me, and that comes from Mad Magazine. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, now I know what I missed. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also in the world of reading, yeah. I know that uh, you saw a book you wanted uh, to recommend to people, um, reviewed in the New York Times. Yeah. And uh, it is called Higher Etiquette, A Guide to the World of Cannabis, From Dispensaries to Dinner Parties, written by Lizzie Post. Right. Great, great granddaughter of the American etiquette doyenne, Emily Post. And uh, so it's just, uh, it's out there for those who feel the need and want to be able to um, follow proper etiquette. As I understand it, etiquette just comes down to helping everybody feel comfortable. Now, yeah, the only thing that kind of attracted my interest was the connection with Emily Post. So in a different generation, call that 50 years ago, Emily Post was writing about how to behave at dinner parties. And her descendant here is writing about how to behave at a marijuana party. Right, which just is a slightly different uh, venue. Capitalizing on the post name and and making the most of it, and the Times is uh, reviewing this book like it's a real book. All right, maybe it is. Maybe, right. maybe there's a need for it. All right, who well, knows? Yeah, maybe there is. So uh, here's something about uh, books and uh, and uh, irreverence, and maybe even baseball. Jim Bouton died, so we've talked about Jim Bouton before a little bit. Uh, Jim Bouton was, you know, right up there with kind of a Mad Magazine type figure, a guy who sort of caused you as a young person who idolized these baseball players to sort of think about them as real people. And what Jim Bouton did, just background quickly, he was, they keep saying he was an average pitcher. He was not an average pitcher. He was a very good pitcher. Okay. And he, uh, he won close to 20 games a couple of years. He won games in the World Series. He was a really good pitcher and he hurt his arm. Mm-hmm. As happens. So, he, you know, at the age of 27, he was pretty much out of business, maybe. And then he decided to, he might get back to the big leagues with a trick pitch, which was the knuckleball. And he was working on it. And it's an odd way to get back to the major leagues. And he sort of did it. And knuckleball became sort of metaphor for his personality because he was always kind of an odd duck. He, he would have been the, the, the snarky, smart aleck kid reading Mad Magazine or whatever the equivalent was in the Yankee clubhouse. Uh, and... His book, even though it was the story of his odyssey in terms of working his way back in these small cities, these small minor league godforsaken towns to get back to the big show, since he was telling his story, he inevitably told a story about what it was like being on the New York Yankees. And it turns out being on the New York Yankees was not what people thought, uh, namely attending a board meeting at U.S. Steel. It was very much not like that. It was like hanging out with a bunch of guys in their 25s. 25 to 28 years old who were knuckleheads who were pursued by groupies and, uh, you know, who were on the road all the time and were married or not married and tried to make the most of the kind of social connections available on the road. And so it was a scandalous book? It was a scandalous book. And Did he so, write that after he had made a comeback or just while it was in, in the conjunction? Middle, missed com- in the midst of his comeback. Okay. 
And, and did he actually make a comeback? He did. He okay. did. And and he made it to the major leagues. He never became a star, but he pitched for teams like the Houston Astros, which was a cellar-dwelling team at the time. But he got back, and he even won a few games. Uh, but nobody made any money in baseball in those days uh, because of the reserve clause and no free agency. So even when he's playing for the Yankees, he's making $27,000 a year, even though they're pitching him in the World Series. Uh, so he needed to do something, and this this book became his fortune, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people really uh, went crazy about the book, positively and negatively. Um, positively in the sense that, you know, they have all kinds of lists about greatest sports books, greatest books written. And, and Ball Force turns up on these lists as one of the top, I can give you the other three, the other two books in terms of top sports books, like Boys of Summer and, and, and this one, and, and Ball Force. It's just kind of crazy. It was kind of. Did he write it on his own? He had some help, but okay. uh, but uh, uh, I think it was uh, Leonard Vesey possibly. But he uh, the point is that he was criticized. So the book, in, in retrospect, is now considered classic is too strong a work, but but a meaningful work, and it kind of because it opened people's eyes. Believe it or not, people were so naive as to what really goes on in clubhouse. These weren't a bunch of. Right, gentlemen. Right, of and, summer. And some um, of them, and did he name names? Oh yes. Okay. So and, and some of them were drunk at the ballpark. So for example, Mickey Mantle never talked to him again. Never talked to him again. Believe me, they crossed paths a million and times. And when he wrote this, Mickey Mantle was still playing. Oh yes. Okay. And uh, and there were guys. He was an F. But he not only did he criticize ball players, but here's the thing: the, the biggest crime you can commit in sports. He criticized sports writers. And if you criticize sports writers, they never get over it. They think that if you criticize a sports writer, America has been unhinged. So there are, Dick Young would be the example of excoriating him. But he was criticizing sports writers because he was saying that all these things were going on and the sports writers were turning a blind eye to them. The sports writers were writing pablum. You know, Mantle, Mantle was showing up to the game. Mickey Mantle hung over and he was being brought in the eighth inning, the pinch hit, and he struck out because he couldn't even see the ball. They just said, oh, Mickey Mantle put on a brave at bat in the eighth inning and he just, uh, he, he, you know, he, he couldn't hit a particular pitch with such a great pitch. That's the way they wrote about things. So they were enablers in his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so he got uh, quite quite a bit of criticism. You might even say that people overreacted to it. And it made him sort of a counterculture figure, if you will. Uh-huh. He also made some money because he was one of the early investors in Big League Chew, which is the bubble gum that's in a pouch that looks like chewing tobacco, but it's chewing gum. Ah. Uh, so he, he, did, he did all right. But, uh, you know, he's... Well, it's interesting. It's, I mean, uh, you could see somebody writing a book like that years after right. being active. No, and that's why a, it was a, a sensation. A memoir, looking back yeah. and telling all. But but while it's going on, that's uh, that takes... Uh, some guts. Yeah, it takes guts and or, maybe naivete or yeah. maybe he was looking for... But, you know, I will say maybe he's looking for a payout. But you know something? People remember it. Some people remember it as it just was a tell-all book. It was his story. Mm-hmm. It was his story. It was more about his trying to make it as a knuckleball pitcher than anything else. But it did tell... It, he casually say, look, this is the truth. What's the big deal? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I will tell you, based on that book and other books I've read about baseball... Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of people you run into in baseball at all levels, I'm, I'm not saying they're better or worse than other people, but they're not the most educated. So it, it's, it is kind of a, you know, it, it's a rough situation. So you don't lack for characters or colorful sayings or profanity or scatological incidents. I don't think the profanity, the colorful sayings are the problem. I think uh, 
saying that they were drunk or saying they were cheating on their wives, etc. Yeah, well, you know, they'd rub people to the make wrong people way. uncomfortable. Yeah, and also to say mean things about the sports writers. I mean, their job is you know writing about you, so they're going to take it out on you. Oh, they did, and, and he, yeah. he, but and yet. He was what he said about the sports writers was correct. Did he say mean things about uh, owners or anybody like that? Yeah, but I mean, people kind of expect that. I mean, the owners were cheap. I mean, what he he would talk about his negotiation sessions. You know, they were paying him twenty five thousand dollars. He's pitching the World Series. They're making a zillion dollars, and you know, he's negotiating every fifty dollars on his contract. And they're saying, "Well, I'll cut you because of the reserve clause disabled him from going to another team." The owners truly took advantage of the players uh, at that point in time. And they've been paying for it in the last 20 or 30 years. They pay in these inflated salaries to these guys, many of which don't earn them. Mm-hmm. Sign, a, sign a contract and stop playing. Did he have an axe to grind with any of the people he uh, revealed information about? I don't about? know. I don't think he had an axe to grind so much as um, he was never in the in-group. He, was, he, he got to the Yankees like anybody else. He was this wide-eyed kid. And he said, oh, it's Mickey Mantle. Oh, it's Roger Maris. And after three, two or three years, he, his attitude was like, uh, you know... Uh, these guys, there's something off with these guys. And he was the smart aleck in the room. He wasn't in the main. So it wasn't sour grapes? No, no sour grapes. He wasn't competing with them. So, whatever. All right. So I I have a sports story today myself. You have to give me back the paper. I won't know well, who it's I, th- about. I thought you were going to talk about uh, the castle, but... Uh... Oh, okay. I'll do that later. All right. I'll do my sports later. All, All right, right. Go ahead. Um, Belvedere Castle in Central Park is being reopened after a fairy tale makeover. Yeah. Okay, so of course Central Park is one of the great um, public parks uh, in the world, in the world, really. And it's amazing that it exists in a metropolis like New York. And uh, it opened in about 1876. Now, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, back then that, that was the dawn of public parks. Um, public parks didn't really exist. Uh, cities <laughs> um, hadn't even existed for yeah. that long a time. There was this beginning, there was this burgeoning feeling that cities are not great places to be. Yeah. And all over the world, um, Paris, London, um, New York included, they're trying to figure out how to handle uh, life in the city, and life was pretty ugly uh, at the turn of the 18th into the 19th century. One of the first things that happens is that um, cemeteries are invented. Yeah, so that becomes a part. Because back in the day, uh, everybody was buried in the back of their church, in their churchyard. Uh, Churchyards within city confines uh, are running out of space. And uh, it's beginning to be a a huge problem. So starting in about, uh, I guess, uh, 1804 or so, when you have Père Lachaise in Paris, you begin to have these big cemeteries that aren't associated with one particular church. Anybody can be buried there who pays the money. Um, And uh, so what happens is these are beautiful bucolic places with monuments and uh, very often wonderful plantings, wonderful almost arboreta, and people begin to treat them as parks. In fact, in Laurel Hill in the Philadelphia area in the 1840s, 50s, the cemetery is so crowded on the weekends that they begin to sell tickets 
for you to be able to get in the, into the cemetery to come and have a picnic or because whatever. they have no parks otherwise because there, there are no yeah the public parks don't exist and this is a delightful place to get away from all the oppressive uh, lack of sanitation etc in cities at that time life is pretty tough mm-hmm. so all right so then during the 1840s 50s you begin to have places like New York say, we got to have a park. We got to save some of this green space before it's all swallowed up um, by urban uh, architecture, etc. And uh, so, uh, Central Park a Commission is formed, and uh, people are hired: Frederick Law Olmsted, Calvert Vox. And by 1876, you have this magnificent Central Park which includes all kinds of things, fountains, stages, rambles, and a folly called Belvedere Castle. Belvedere means beautiful view. Right. And uh, a fo- you know what a folly is? Yeah, it's a I know what a folly is. It's a fake building. It's a fake Oh, that's what a folly is? Yeah. It's, it's meant to, it's something picturesque. Yeah. In England, they had them on a stage. You'd have like a uh, faux... Uh, Greek ruin uh, on your estate property, uh, Uh on your grounds, uh, to be picturesque. And that's what this is. It wasn't a functioning building, castle, ever. Didn't even have doors or windows. Okay. It was just meant to be, you know, interesting and attractive. So eventually, uh, actually, doors and windows are put in and it becomes a weather station. People feel it needs to be used. And with the park, it kind of goes in and out of disrepair. Mm -hmm. So by the time you and I were living in New York City in the 70s, it was a mess covered with graffiti, a scary place. Uh, There were probably squatters there. I don't know. Um, But it was not fabulous. Right around, it's in the 80s when you begin to have a real movement to uh, restore Central Park. Now, Central Park over the years, since 1876, has gone up and down and has been restored and renovated a couple of times. But by the 70s, it's really in need. And, you know, one of the first uh, people involved in uh, raising money for uh, Central Park, George Soros. Oh, well, 1980. Yeah, okay. And, well, he had uh, the money. That's the group sure. that he starts with yeah. eventually um, joins with another group and becomes the Central Park Conservancy, uh, which does a huge restoration project uh, going over decades, starting in the 80s, 90s. And uh, you remember that. There was a time when we lived in New York where you it was really, you know, um, somewhat risky to walk across oh, sure. Central Park oh, yeah. alone. I remember uh, shortly before we were married, I was walking uh, home from work across Central Park. And, you know, we lived in the 90s. Right. Okay, so I was walking from the east side to the west side through Central Park and a cyclist swooped down next to me and tried to grab my briefcase. Hmm which at the time was holding my wedding ring. Oh, my God. And uh, for I, I don't know what possessed me, but I actually held on very tight. Yeah. Guy lost his balance and uh, rather than fall, uh, kept riding and went on. Um, so, you know, Central Park was dicey. Mm-hmm. The one little nice part was that the, um, I don't know, it was called the Conservancy Garden or something up north on the east side was still this little oasis of beauty. But uh, anyway... Uh, much renovation were done. Fabulous things were done to kind of revive and reconstruct uh, the original ideas and plantings uh, of Central Park. 
And, uh, you know, and, and the Belvedere Castle was uh, renovated during the 80s, and now it's been renovated again and uh, just gets better and better. It's kind of magical. You know what the best time to see it is when you're at the Delacorte Theater, yeah. right? And it's the backdrop. There's a little body of water right at the base of the Belvedere Castle, and it's the backdrop of so many uh, performances of Shakespeare right. that you see. And maybe there's yeah. a moon. Right. They were saying it's behind. all lit up and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it's kind of fabulous. So, you know, they're going to be uh, renovating some other things as well. Lasker Rink, Delacorte Theater is going to go through a big renovation in a few years. So uh, lots of it. One of the great places, I know we've been really loving walking through Central Park. Uh, in the early mornings. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, certainly remember the thing with your briefcase and the guy on the bike. Was that uptown, like in the 90s? Yeah, I was walking almost directly across. Okay, so um, I remember yeah. that the same way because I, when I would take a run uh, in Central Park, I would go from the east side to the west side to get back home on 95th Street would have, been, would have been the crossing area. Yeah. And I would save some energy for that run because I said to myself, I'm running across Central Park in the 90s I could be attacked easily. So well, I would be sprinting across that period. I'm really sure I was walking across, at a certain point, walking across the Ramble, mm-hmm. which is where that um, terrible incident that the movie yeah. was about happened right. as well. So, um, yeah, that, that was a normal thing for me. I would take the bus or the subway up to a certain point on the east side and then just walk home across the park. You mean about the kids who were arrested for the uh, assault in yeah, Central the, Park? Yeah, right. the Central Park jogger incident. Right. All right, well, I got carried away with your story there. Um, Speaking of New York. <laughs> Speaking of New York. Look, we had the All-Star game this week, and, if, you know, and it was uh, – the Mets have not had a good season. And, uh, but this was, was a bright light. It was a bright light. Yeah, Peter Alonso. Peter Alonso won the home run derby. We're very excited about that. And we wanted him. That. We wanted him to and yet, so that he could pay for his wedding. That's Remember, right. Remember, that was his dream. We did write it. We did talk right. about that. He needed that million dollars goes to the winner. You think he was wearing his Superman underwear? I, I think he always I guess wears so. his Superman underwear. I guess so. Who wouldn't? If, who, who owns such underwear would ever skip a day with Superman underwear? But... Um, it's funny. He, he promised 5% would go to charity, and people were very excited about that. It's, it's good. It's but good. here's a weird thing. Yeah. So you were forcing me at gunpoint to watch a Met game the yeah. other day, right. okay? Maybe, I don't know, two or three days ago, and uh, Alonzo was at bat. Yeah. And he had this elbow guard He on. does. He wears an elbow guard. Well, it was gold, That's Daniel. A, it's, it's and a, he had like this gold cuff. Yeah, I mean, it was a little. Me it looked you, a little this obnoxious. This is the difference you know between. What? And he was not having a good game, and it seemed that later in the game he was not wearing. All right, look, maybe that. it made him uncomfortable. I don't know, but what's funny about the game's change since you think Jim Batten times? Gave it to him there's a guy he he wear on it. the Mets named uh, Echeverria. He is as borderline a major league player as there is. In other words, he's kind of what's called a foray player. In other words, Triple A, and there's the major leagues. In between, there's foray. That's what Echeverria is. He has his own elbow guard with his name on it. Yeah. So it, it doesn't take much to, to get bling this was on there. gold. Uh, well, yeah. all right. It's a real, doesn't have gold. On the flashy side. In any event, uh, but just so, just so you don't think that everything's going smoothly for the Mets, even at the All Star game, uh, he was accompanied. Uh, Alonzo had two Met teammates there DeGrom, of course, Jake DeGrom, uh, and Jeff McNeil. And Jeff McNeil, very excited, another young player like Alonzo. And when uh, Jeff McNeil got into the game in the seventh inning, came up to bat, you know, they flash up the picture of the guy and his statistics on the big scoreboard. And they flashed up Jake DeGrom's photograph instead of Jeff McNeil's. <laughs> and they never fixed it. And he was, understandably, really put out 
yeah. at the end of the game. He says, my family flew all the way down here to see me. That was the big moment. They were going to see, you know, my picture in there. And they the also game. Tron. And instead they had Jake DeGrom, who's a pretty good looking guy. But yeah. even so, he was kind of down on that. And just to punctuate the Mets situation, two days before that, or a few days before then, July 4th celebration, like many minor league parks, the uh, Mets park in St. Lucie had um, fireworks. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a fire. Uh, they actually had a fire in the right field stands. No one was hurt, but they couldn't put the fireworks on without calamity. So uh, the Mets were falling You mean like apart. a firework landed in the stands? I don't something? know how it happened, but uh, they had to cancel the fireworks and people had to leave the area. So that's, Those that's Mets. That's where the Mets stand. So there's yeah, an article. They are a mess. Yes. So just to get away from the Mets and other sports, not that this is that notable, but. but just an interesting article about a fellow named Chase uh, Budinger, um, who I remember when he played uh, basketball for Arizona, who then played in the NBA for four years and uh, earned, they say, $18 million, which doesn't surprise me. They pay very well there. But he played for four or five teams, was not a big star. Uh, interestingly, when he was in high school, he was an All-American uh, indoor volleyball player. And it occurred to him after his NBA career kind of stalled and nobody was picking him up at the age of 27, then maybe you should get back to volleyball. Except is there professional volleyball? There is, but it's beach volleyball. Ooh. So uh, here is a picture of uh, Chase, who's six foot seven. Turns out he's six foot seven, and believe it or not, he can jump. And uh, he's a great volleyball player. Uh, so great that they think he's one of the finest in the country and may represent the U.S. in the Olympics. You know, there have been some other basketball players. Uh, who made a big splash in volleyball. Uh, you would never guess the leader, leading basketball player in the Volleyball Hall of Fame. I'll give you one. You, you won't guess. Wilt Chamberlain. Really? Was a fantastic volleyball player. Wow. Yeah. But uh, Budinger uh, is going to make it happen. They say, look, a lot of it's skill as opposed to everything else. And he's talking about how physically demanding it is. You don't think many NBA players can do it. Um, look, it's just a different skill set. But it is interesting to see what anybody who excels in one sport, and believe me, you're an 18 million in the NBA, you excel, even if you weren't a superstar, uh, to make it in a second sport, and that's volleyball, and I guess you're going to be watching them in the Olympics in a couple of years. Well, that would be interesting. And speaking of the Olympics in a couple of years, there's an article in the New York Times that uh, the headline is, Water Polo Resurgence Relies on Human Fish. And this is actually a guy, Johnny Hooper, who is the son of Gary Hooper, an elite beach volleyball Hall of Famer. Okay, And uh, it seems like uh, that uh, Johnny Hooper gets into uh, water polo for that age-old reason of it's the one sport his dad can't play. Oh, well, that uh, sounds familiar. And yeah. uh, he really shines in it. Yeah. And uh, he is a big hope. He failed to make the 2016 Olympic team, but he has made, you know, he I guess he's hoping to make this team. I don't know if teams are established. But he's one of the big hopes, a key attacker for the U.S. team that is at the moment heading uh, to play Kazakhstan on uh, Monday. Yeah in South Korea. What's interesting about him is that he has dual citizenship right. with the United States and Japan. Japan right. His mother's Japanese, his grandmother lives near Yokohama, and she is, you know, you know, thrilled and waiting for him to show up in the Olympics. Now, so I was discussing this. I mean, he's a great player. He's not huge, 6'1", 195, but, uh, you know, 
in eight feet of water, everyone's the same height. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's just apparently amazing. That's why they call him human fish. They say he gets up to his thighs out of the oh, water. Oh, I thought it was more than that. I thought it was like his ankles. I think <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, which you'll probably be doing soon with your new flippers. Well, uh, I was going to say, out. you know, I, we, we should make clear that uh, we identify with the idea of kids taking a sport that their dad can't coach them in. Absolutely. But you should know that Granger was helping with my swimming before. You might want to take a session with Granger, I think. Uh, you might benefit from that. Granger, I know, is a great uh, teacher. He's uh, done a lot of teaching of swimming. So yeah. I have, I have a tremendous faith in his abilities in that area. I'm interested to know you think I need some. Uh, <laughs> Only if you want to keep up with me. What's interesting here is I was talking to Nico and Granger about this a little bit. And he says, well, that's kind of interesting because the U.S. is clearly kind of a second tier, right. you know, the men, not, uh, you know, uh, not that uh, prominent, exciting uh, right. team in terms of water polo. Okay, however, yeah, they say Japan is good. Has gotten interesting. Oh, really? And uh, maybe on the rise, and that may be a much more interesting team to be playing with. Well, come those next Olympics. Well, maybe he could play for Japan. I don't know. It's up so, to him. Uh, Johnny, if you're listening, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's occurred to him. Take some advice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Here's a thought. Yes. Okay, moving right along here. Um, I noticed in the obituaries a name seemed familiar to me, Philip Freelon, uh, architect who prized black history, passed away this week. And uh, he was an architect who was involved in some very interesting and some very big projects, among them the National Museum of African American History and Culture that recently opened down on the mall. Um, he was the lead uh, architect on the group that um, worked on that. The reason his name seemed familiar, because you'll remember that uh, we went to a terrific jazz concert, jazz vocal concert at uh, Princeton University uh, that we happened on to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the star of the show, sort of the guest artist in residence, was Nina Freelon, who is Philip Freelon's wife, who was uh, Philip Freelon's wife. Right. And uh, she, um, he had uh, been diagnosed with ALS mm -hmm. and passed away from complications uh, relevant to that. And uh, it was very poignant seeing her in this concert. She was obviously had been through a great deal. Uh, recently, and this was kind of a healing, seemed like a healing experience yeah. for her, um, being with these students for a week or so, yeah. and uh, well, she, singing with them and teaching they them, They wrote about it, and she spoke about it, and it yeah. seemed like she was, you know, had a decent career. Uh, we weren't terribly familiar with her, but clearly at, at some point she had to put her career aside, and she was caring uh, for her husband. Yeah. And uh, he was in, and that's how we first heard uh, Philip's name. He and he was, a, a, you know, legitimately interesting person. Right. Right. Um, his father, Alan, was a sales and marketing executive. His mother, an educator. His grandfather, um, Alan Randall Freelon Sr., a uh, painter popular in the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the one thing he says is. Um, if you have a talented, this is a quote from him, if you have a talented young African-American, their family will likely know a lawyer, doctor, teacher, clergyman, 
but not an architect. My parents, who were both college educated, didn't know any architect of any color, and certainly not a black one. Um, and so he just uh, was speaking a bit about uh, how he was inspired by his grandfather's uh, artistic background, but inspired, uh, you know, towards designing buildings. Well, I, I can see one reason for that is that they always say architecture is something that you don't necessarily go in with the expectation of being able to make a living. Well, literally, I remember somebody's uh, somebody saying to us, uh, that's a rich man's right. profession. Right. Um, and uh, But he, um, he starts out... Uh, at, the architecture school in uh, Hampton University in Virginia, and then he ends up at NC State, and eventually he will get a graduate degree at MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and as I said, he works. He worked on important, interesting, largely um, institutional mm-hmm. projects, and uh, he made a point of not just wanting to do, um, you know, upper echelon buildings, but buildings that people, you know, everyday people would actually come in contact with. He thought there was a value to having beauty and style and design in everyone's daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, um, okay. Uh, that's interesting. The last piece is another obituary about uh, a man named uh, Joao Gilberto, Um who, who basically invented the bossa nova. Well, do you want to pick up on a word you just used? He's described in the Times as the architect of bossa nova. And uh, it was interesting just reading about it because, uh, you know, he uh, there's a description in the Times about the bossa nova. Uh, and I hadn't really thought much about it. I've certainly listened to enough bossa nova. Um, but bossa nova means a new thing, new style. That's what it means. And it didn't. It was kind of an invention in the 50s and 60s. It was a combination of sort of samba, which is Latin, of course, and American jazz. And what you had is uh, the American uh, uh, jazz artist um, Stan Getz playing with these folks like uh, Joao Gilberto uh, and uh, sort of refining this sound uh, and it's epitomized, of course, in most people's minds in The Girl from Ipanema. And uh, The Girl from Ipanema, well, I should say that Bossa Nova first became popular, or at least came to notice in the U.S., uh, in the soundtrack for a film called Black Orpheus, which I remember being told about when I was in uh, high school. It was a Brazilian film. So that the early 60s? or uh, 1959, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and uh, there was then there was a, an album that followed with Stan Getz and the guitarist Charlie Bird, uh, in which uh, Gilberto was a great influence. Um, and well, o- I remember it from uh, I was watching. Um, oh, what was the New Year's Eve show? You all, you always watched back in the day. Ah, uh, the New Year's Eve. Oh, I know what you're talking Guy Lombardo. Guy Lombardo. I was yeah. watching Guy Lombardo one New Year's Eve, and they said, uh, we want to show you a new popular dance craze, yeah. and it was the bossa nova. And uh, so I guess it was kind of a tiny tot uh, at that time, um, but uh, looked like fun. Well, yeah, and it, it, it became... And I think it took the U.S. by storm. It, came, it did, and that's a very good point. So it, it came to uh, the U.S. And at about that time, and it did take it by storm. And to the in the U.S., and the Times writes about this, Bossa Nova meant something different, exotic, and slightly upmarket. 
and a newly American-made dance. So you had Edie Gourmet sing a song called Blame It on the Bossa Nova. And, Blame it on the Bossa Nova. Right. And they have the quote here that Bossa Nova is, is a phrase that had been used to advertise cashmere sweaters, throw rugs, ice cream, and new haircuts. I mean, it, it, it was a cultural thing. It was the cool thing to do. Uh, and it all kind of culminated in an album that was made by Joao Gilberto and his wife, Astru Gilberto, whom he had married in 59. And they collaborated on this album with Stan Getz called Getz Gilberto, whether you know it or not. Right, I have so played that. This is the thing. This yeah. is what people should do. Yeah. Um, all people who have like these new, cool, mid-century modern yeah. decors in their houses now got to run out, get a vinyl copy of this Stan well, Getz, uh, and be playing it. I think it's the perfect soundtrack it is. for mid-century modern. And the album, uh, and we'll, we'll play it now for just a couple minutes. There's a cut from the album, the lead cut. Uh, guess what that's called? It's called The Girl from Ipanema. And here's how it was first released, and it's in Portuguese and English, uh, sung by Joao and Astrid Gilberto. Sounds like fun. All right, that's all we got today. I'm Tamson Granger. And Dan Apuha. See you next week. Tamson and Dan read the paper. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça. Ela, menina que vem, que passa. Um doce balanço, caminho do mar. Moça do corpo dourado do sol de Ipanema O seu balançado é mais que um poema É a coisa mais linda que eu já vi passar Ah, por que estou tão sozinho? Ah, por que tudo é tão triste? Beleza que não é só minha, que também passa sozinha. Ah, se ela soubesse que quando ela passa, o mundo sorrindo se enche de graça e fica mais lindo por causa do amor. Friendship.